Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another sunny day in an empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Ian Beswick, director of Avant-Garde Salons, a dynamic hair salon company in the Midlands. Ian, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, normally, we charge headlong into the subject of leadership. However, considering the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you how this has affected your business. Sure, sure. Um, obviously, a drastic, drastic, drastic changes for us, really. Um, being a service-led industry, we currently have... Uh, nobody passing through our doors so um very very different times um but um being taking the glass half full approach it's given us time to reflect on our business um given us time to make changes with without having to um not allow clients into the salon so we can make some really detailed changes so um although it's obviously um very very difficult um, and there are more financial pressures for us um, it's given us given us the opportunity to make some really really good changes for um, our customers and our team fantastic um, now of course it's a, it's a difficult period for most businesses and uh, when we come out of this there will have to be some uh, rearrangements uh, so sure, yeah. how do you think uh, that the beauty industry, the, the hair salons, uh, nails, makeup, that sort of thing, which is quite an intimate uh, affair when, when one is having these things done, uh, how can they adapt to this new world? Indeed, yeah. Um, well, obviously, there'll be a great deal of PPE involved. Um, keeping our team safe is obviously a priority, and the experience in our salons is, is something we pride ourselves on. So we want our customers to feel relaxed still, even though this is a new time. Um, we're putting things in place to, to make people still have that experience when they come to the salon. They're not going to feel concerned or worried. They're going to see the, the amount of uh, effort we've gone to, to to create a safe environment so they, so they do, again, begin to relax and enjoy the experience. So um, we're putting a lot in place to make sure people are safe and um, enjoy enjoy the experience as much as they did before. Now we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, somebody that puts themselves, um, put others before themselves. Um, the lead by example, uh, remain calm under pressure, uh, somebody that's driven and has good focus. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, a good listener. And how would you describe your leadership style? Um, good question. Um, I guess we're very adaptable um, and understanding of different different people's situations. Um we're, we're very aware of mental health and making sure that we we take the time to, to, to talk to each one of our staff. I mean, there's, there's 60 team members that we look after. So um, it, we treat it more like a family. So it's not, they're not just staff members, but they mean far more to us. So we're here, here from a support mechanism as well and where we can help, we always will. Um, but yeah, I guess 
Um, I'm passionate. I'm driven. Uh, we're, we're we're really focused on achieving our goals. So I guess that kind of feeds through the team and the uh, the, the passion that we have for our own business um, it is infectious. Now, let's uh, talk about where uh, your strategy comes from. Let's go back to the beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Did you have any particular influences on you, whether they be a set of circumstances or uh, an individual who shaped you as you are today? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, hairdressing is is an incredible industry, Um, something we're super fortunate to be involved with. When I was when I was younger, it's not something I thought I would do as a career. Um, I'm I'm not a hairdresser myself. My wife um, is, I guess, on the tool side of the business. But um, now the business has grown to the state that it's the size that it is. Um, Nam is less involved from behind the chair and more involved on focusing on on the business and the team. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, you just evolve over time. I've always been passionate um i've always enjoyed marketing and various different things so we we've just evolved over time really i don't i don't particularly have any one person that i see has has helped me forge where we're at i think i think myself and my wife is that we've we've been inspired by by each other along the way and achieved what we have so far (laughs) my apologies um have there been any uh, difficulties when you're working so closely with family members within a business? Uh, I guess people people think that a lot, but um, no, yeah, obviously we 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 are together twenty four seven. But no, it, it's fantastic. We we have different jobs and roles within the business. So although we're we're together every day, we we we're not always in each other's pockets, so to speak. But um, it, it, it's fantastic. I wouldn't have it any other way. So uh, lockdown mustn't have been that difficult to adjust to. <laughs> no, we've been in lockdown for many years. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's uh, talk about uh, something that unfortunately isn't that pleasant, and sometimes that can be personnel management. Uh, when it comes uh, to human beings, we know that they're certainly not infallible, and sometimes, even though they have the best of intentions, they can get into conflict with one another through either uh, uh, animosity or through uh, their work not being up to snuff. How do you go about resolving conflict within business? Sure. I, I guess, I mean, we're, we're fairly fortunate to not have to, not have to have dealt with that very often. I guess the way that we run our businesses is uh, very much that family feel. So we, we we are here to support each other and look after each other. I understand, obviously, at, at times there can be a little bit of friction, but the reality is once you sit down and you have a conversation, and um, it's very often that situation is not the problem. There are several other little catalysts along the way. Um, somebody having a slightly off day uh, has resulted in a comment they didn't really mean. So um, very often it, it's communication. We sit down, mm-hmm. we have a conversation, um, and, and yeah, we're yet to see a situation where it's never been resolved. So communication is absolutely key. Sure thing, it is, yeah. So, of course, in your industry, you have a lot of very young people coming in as apprentices. What's the most important thing they should know on day one? 
Um, work, work hard. Um, I guess we, we're in a Instagram versus reality culture, um, which where young, young people today almost uh, have a, a, a get-rich-quick scheme uh, mentality where, you know, they, they look at uh, influencers online or uh, people that have been on TV shows and are, are an overnight success. Um, and and think that that kind of happens in in normal reality where you know it doesn't mm-hmm. um, hard work uh, good manners um, and, and being a good person w- w- will get you where you want to be. Um, it's very rare that you actually you know I guess it's what less than one percent of of the population are going to make it on a TV show. So. Um, be be a little bit more driven to, to your chosen career. Um, work hard. Well, I'm fortunately our time together is drawing to its close. Uh, but before I let you go, what does next twelve months have in store for Avant Garde Salons? Um, yeah, absolutely, I guess the downtime has given us plenty of time to, to plan and reflect. Um, as as a business, we've been really involved with charity work. Um, for example, over the last two years, uh, I was involved in a London to Paris cycle ride for uh, Blood Cancer UK, mm-hmm. um, which came about from one of our product partners, Weller, uh, were hosting a, an event at the Royal Albert Hall. And uh, like many, at the, many of the Weller events, I was uh, several beers in uh, and was approached by another salon owner, uh, Simon and Bruno, to join and that, they asked me to join them on, on a cycle ride, uh, 500 kilometres from London to Paris, uh, and raise money for the charity. Um, I agreed uh, and, and got involved with that. Uh, and the first year that we did it, actually, I had one member of, of my team join us. Um, so Alex joined me from one of my Worcester salons. Um, and we got involved. Uh, obviously, we talk about inspiration, but this, this four days, was so inspiring, so incredible. And um, yes, the journey from London to Paris on a road bike is difficult, but the, the amount of energy that's created by the people that you're with, people that, that are currently going through cancer, yet they're on a bike, and you know, that such an inspiring event to be involved with. Mm. Um, the following year, um, last year in 2019, we actually took 12 members of our team um, that, that got behind behind the project and we we've, we've raised in those two years just over £17,000 um, for blood cancer so um, for us it's been a fantastic team building exercise um, and something that we will we will look to do in the future is, is, is create um, an event that gives us um, a fantastic bonding exercise but also does something good for, for a fantastic charity as well so as much as we focus on our business we'll, we'll be focused on um, trying to support and do, do good things as well. Well, Ian, that sounds like an absolutely fantastic idea. And I'd love to have you back on the program when things get back to some semblance of normalcy so we can uh, get up to date on uh, what you and the entire team at Avant Garde Salons uh, are up to. Ian, thank Yeah, it would you. be a pleasure. No problem. Thank you. That was Ian Beswick, director of Avant Garde Salons. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, 
And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Tresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Tresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up 
doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising, I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the, 
biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty 
uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over to the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had 
lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in december uh, 2018 uh, i came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know... we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, yeah. A very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- uh, wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary yeah. thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.